Ooh, it's that time of the week again. It's time to come into the GM studio to talk about a little bit of the RPGs and the RPG hobby, centered mostly for the Game Master, but please, players, come in. We'd like to talk to you. We, we're friendly with you. We, every now and then, we actually get into that player's seat and we do it ourselves. Sure. And it's nice. I am your host, Matt. I am David. And today we've got kind of a bare bones show. It's going to be nice. We're just going to be doing a lot of bullshitting. We got a, our main topic. We've got our community questions. I've got some cool shit that happened at my Savage Shadowrun game. Nice. And uh, that's about it, really. But uh, how you been, Dave? I know you're working on something for us instead of our Curse of Stroud campaign. Yeah, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do it next week because one of the players is traveling. So we might get one or two weeks of it in. Uh, but I think I'm going to I'm going to run a classic adventure. I'm just going to pre-gen the characters, uh, dole them out, tinker with the adventure a little bit. Should be just a straightforward kind of puzzle-oriented dungeon crawl. So I think it'll be fun. Uh, but knowing my luck, I'll do all the prep for it. And Beto will be like, hey, actually, uh, I'm back this week. And I'll be like, oh, okay, cool. We just hired uh, some new dude, and guess what? He knows what to do, so he knows, I'm good. He just knew it. He just knew it all, all along, apparently. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Something different, even just get back in the habit of playing So I know you were talking about the Yawning Portal shit. Are you going to do kind of a mishmash? Or are you going to go for more of a straightforward sort of thing from there? I think I'm just going to run right White Plume Mountain. Ooh, that's a good classic. I have never actually run or played in white plume mountain i didn't think either of us ever had i was looking over it i'm gonna tinker with some of the uh because there's a couple artifacts in there whatever i think i'm just gonna kind of mod them so that they're mm. not whatever but i'll probably have a five character party it's for it's for levels eight i guess i yeah. was thinking it was like four or five but it's it's level eight so it's gonna dole out a standard array of a party probably play one npc let you guys just get right into it. And then if it's something we want to go back to after, you know, we don't get through it before Curse of Strahd comes back, we can go back to it and finish up that crawl. And if we want to continue with it um, after Curse of Strahd or in lieu of Curse of Strahd, it can just kind of be our backup nice. campaign, I guess. It would be another way to do it. So yeah, all right. should nice. be fun. But what about Savage Shadowrun? How'd that Dude, go? Dude, so our last session, they got into the thick of it. If you remember, uh, mm -hmm. they had broken into the big lab. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and lab. Uh, they started mingling around as uh, two of my players went down to act as one of them used magic to make themselves look like Damian Knight, the CEO, owner of Ares uh, that owned this facility. And then they wow. found out that Damian Knight was actually in the building. Big fucking to do that started to happen. Uh, as they started making their way through the the lab, they got to the uh, the uh, the little bay that the egg was in, where they were doing all the experiments. Maya and Sabina went in there to do their thing, trying to figure out how they were going to go about this, getting the egg into the drone to get it out, while. My buddy Xavier, who was playing the uh, the orc shaman, is calling down spirits to make just backup for as soon as this shit happens. And the one thing was, is my buddy Jeff, who's playing the Decker, 
is in the matrix going through and he's just trying to help out, shut down doors everywhere he can, making sure that security works for everybody. And in canon, and this is why I kind of like pre-generated and um, like fluff in campaigns or just really in settings. I'm not, not in campaigns, but in settings. Damien Knight is one of the very first Deckers that ever, that was a part of a team that like dove into the Matrix. And he's just this really skilled Decker. And uh, as soon as Jeff started fucking around with shit, and I told him, Damien Knight is in the building. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. Don't worry about it. He's going to be fine. Uh, like he would always look right into the camera. And I told him every single time, it seemed like he looked, he's looking right at you. He's like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. But yeah, I know he's just worried about what's going on. Jeff continues on his bullshit through the Matrix. Uh, and that's when I tell him that Damien Knight shoes away his entire security guard. He shoes away his assistant. He pulls out his comlink and takes a cord and plugs it into his head, goes off, and he sits into a seat and dives in. And that's when Jeff started saying, oh, oh, uh. So this guy knows what he's doing. He's like, yeah, he knows what he's doing. Uh, long story short, him and Jeff get into a big fight in the Matrix. And Damien, I mean, just almost outright kills Jeff. Uh, I got lucky as they are in the Matrix dueling it out that uh, I explode. I ace and explode my damage dice on one just him shooting a data spike at him. I ended up doing on one roll 36 points of damage. Nice. And in Savage Worlds, if you guys don't know, that's a ton of fucking damage. Yes, uh, for every four points of damage, quote unquote, you do one wound of health over that person's toughness. Now, Jeff has big, he has a huge firewall. His firewall is 11. So his toughness is 11. But even with that 36 points over that, you only have three wounds in Savage Worlds. So he was just five, outright that's, that's five wounds. Yeah, over here. he was so pretty much like just only outright two dead. wounds over dead. Yeah, yeah, he was pretty much outright dead. You still get a, the um, bleeding out rule, which I'm totally fine with. And I was like, all right, well, no matter what, you know, just going to roll your vigor every every round and make sure that you don't die. And as soon as I got around to his uh, his turn, he pulled it on me. So I always play with action cards. I actually have physical action cards from my Savage Worlds box set. And he just pulls out this card and he says, oh, no, you don't. And he gives it to me. And the action card was uh, character in combat. Uh, what was it? Uh, negates all wounds, comes back to life, but has a scar that gives him to, to all persuasion roles for in real, pretty much in real life month. And I was like, you motherfucker. And he just came back and he started doing all this fucking shit and it turned the, the whole tide of the combat. And it was amazing because everybody, you know, all the dudes, as soon as he went down, he played it real well that uh, he went to radio silence while the two were in the facility with the egg. They were like, you know, McCurlick, are you there? Are you there? Even Xavier up top, the big brother, uh, the orc shaman, it's like, what's happening? What's going on? Where are you? And all of a sudden, he just pops back up at full health, and he's just like, oh, I got this shit. But then he shows up later, and he's got this huge scar and a lisp. 
he actually went for it. He was like, I got a lisp because I bit my tongue really hard and he's playing it out and it's so good. It's hilarious. And I've decided that for as long as he plays the lisp, I'm giving him an extra Benny for every uh, session for the month that he has the scar. This kind of illuminates uh, the benefits of depletable resources as per our our um, oh shit mechanic resources mm -hmm. uh, as per our discussion last week. It can create some really fun things that you just kind of pull out of your back pocket, especially if they're things you can kind of like hold on to until mm -hmm. you're like, until it's like a moment of high drama like that. Oh, and um, that's another thing is he is now seasoned rank three. He's been hanging on to that car, card since character creation. Oh, really? Jeez. So you got to think, technically, if you think about it in D&D &D terms, he's level five right now. You know, so he's been holding on to that for for a that while. Like a season, season rank three seems like higher than level five. It, seems more it like is, but I, because you rank up in Savage Worlds a little bit quicker. Um, Because season rank three, would, if you actually put in levels term, that is five, six. So it's level eight. Okay. If you would say it in an actual rank up. Right, right. But in terms of, well, maybe, maybe seasoned isn't as high as seasoned is after novice. Yeah. Seasoned is, uh, so novice starts at one mm -hmm. and then at three, you go to season. Okay. But then after that, oh, it's okay. every five, five rank so ups. He's basically, is... So it's basically like 12, 12 to 15 sessions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is, yeah, that's probably. It's probably not even level five in D and D if yeah. you're being frank. 12, 12 to fifteen sessions is. But still, he's been holding on to this card three. since character creation, That's and cool. he pulled it out at this one time. And <laughs> well, fucking done, dude. That's why you keep it. You might need and it. And he was he was later. the turn. He was the turn of the whole battle because they had, uh, at one point, other than because uh, Xavier had all the spirits down there taking care of a lot of the guards, they still had about six to seven security guards you know firing at them at the exact same time and because he pulled that he was able to help them get out without everybody else made it out with no marks on him whatsoever he was the only one that ever took any damage and then he came back unscathed sometimes it goes that way where you have some sort of conflict and there's a distribution of damage mm -hmm. and sometimes that damage, whatever the distribution is, just gets concentrated all into one character. Yep. So we're like, Oh, like, okay, so this is a battle. There's going to be like 70 points of damage in D and D terms doled out. And you have five players, each player come, come away from like 10 to 20 hit points down. Or it's like, sometimes it'll just be like, no, just like 50 of it goes to this guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, that's uh, uh, certainly one way to, to deal with it but that kind of uh levels out over time i think you know if you have one guy that's really beat up and really hurt and the rest of the party is more or less healthy then you just kind of adjust your tactics and strategy but mm -hmm. um moments of high drama like that are always fun oh totally well that was the fun with uh the savage shadow run let's say let's get into some community questions i know dave's yeah. got an actual die this time I got an eight. Can't fake that sound. Number eight. Number eight. All right. Ooh. 
Oh, I've been waiting for this one. All right. So this one comes from Elemental Gamer. Um, the question don't is. Don't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. <laughs> to GM or not to GM. So uh, he's asking, I've been with this group now uh, that they have all been playing for at least five months together, but I have just joined myself. We've all decided that we want to come together and make a game. And they've all decided to say that either I could GM my very first game or I could be a player. Which one should I choose? All right. So uh, this dude has joined a group. Um, they've all been playing for about five months now. Never said what game it is or anything. Guessing D&D. And this dude joined. They want to start a new game. And he has offered to, I can DM or I can play. A couple of the other dudes have probably said that I can DM, but he wants to know, should I, for my very first time, should I be a player or a game master? It's important whether this is his first time with this group or it's yes. his first time playing a game. I'll never endeavor to be a GM your first time out. Really? Ooh. Never. Really? No. Okay. Like you... you being a player is like training wheels. It's mm. how you learn the rules. It's how you learn what's good about a game and what isn't good, what you enjoy and what the other players enjoy, right? It's, it's like the difference. Of, it's like saying, I've never played a sport. Should I coach that sport? No, no, you should absolutely not coach a sport that you've never played. So. All right. Yeah. Better? There you go. All right. We're back. Thank you. All right. So, um, the training wheels. We're on training wheels. Well, I was saying that it's, it's kind of like asking whether you should coach a sport before you've ever played that sport. It's like, mm. well, you don't know a game. You don't know like what the players on the team, what it's like. So I think it's just too difficult. There's too much to manage. If you're not familiar, uh, moving into a new group is probably maybe not best advice. Playing with the players in that group would give you a good idea of kind of what the players like. And I think you need to be armed with that in order to build the kind of game that they want to play in. So I'm not the person to ask on that front because I always just the people that I get into D and D like they don't know any better. So I'm just like, you just, you'll play the kind of game I like. <laughs> this is what it is. This is what D and D is like. <laughs> they have no baseline, mm -hmm. but if you're new to the group, you could endeavor if you're, if, if, if he's ran games before and he's a seasoned like player in DM, then there's no reason he shouldn't be able mm -hmm. to assimilate into a new group and have some sort of baseline for what that would go like. But in general, I would err on the side of being a player, at least in the short term, to get an understanding of, at the very least, what the player dynamics are, what the players like, the sort of game they like to foster. Otherwise, you might just feel like there's too much information and too much management coming at you. And it might be overwhelming if all of these people all know one another and you don't know them, or at the very least, have never mm. played a game with them. But I absolutely discourage it from the outset 
of getting into DMing or game mastering in general if you've never played a game at all. Like you, you sounded a little surprised by that, Matt. The only reason I think about it is it's almost like the the rip the band-aid off sort of thing. Uh going in just whole hog is if you are the one that's going to be chosen to be the game master of it, it's your responsibility to learn the game as much as possible. And if you are willing to take on that and you have a good week to go ahead and read through all the rules, learn everything that you can and do it. And you have the story that you want to be told that you want to be told and played in. That's great. That's awesome. I think that's fantastic. I think that's almost like a, it's like the um, the fire lit under you. It's like, this is now in your hands. It is your job to go in and learn all this stuff in order to make this happen. Also, I like to think that if these other guys, according to the question, they've already been playing for about five months. Now, does that mean that they've been playing five months just in this group? Or is they've only been playing five minutes right. in total? Uh they might be able to help uh, as you're going along. If you have a story to be told and these guys are willing to help you with the rules as you're going along, that's great. Um, I am actually on the side of Dave. I think you should play, first of all, because uh, those training wheels are necessary, mm -hmm. very necessary when it comes to role-playing games, as there's a lot of things that you do. You got to realize how things are run and how RPGs are it's just like uh, there's, you know, it's like back in the day when Dave and I, when I started playing with Dave, we had a couple other players come in that as soon as they did start playing, they were, they'd say, to, oh, you know, Dave would tell them, you wake up in the inn and you walk down, you do this and that. What do you do now? Like, oh, well, I go out to my horse and it's just, well, you don't have a horse. Like, oh, well, uh, you know, I okay, well, you know, I go and I grab my uh, my sword and I take this and this and I do this. And Dave's like, well, you can't really do that. So I can see where it is. The training wheels are. It's just like, oh, you realize, oh, I get it. You kind of run the game. I'm playing this character with these numbers and what's this on here on my sheet. But it's just the rules learning. I think that's what it is that kind of surprises Independent me. of that, though, I think even if this player, this person, has a mastery of the rules of whatever game it is they're playing. And they understand that very well. And maybe they've run a game before or played in other games before to the point where they feel like they could DM. I'm getting the impression that they've never played with this group because they said they've never mm -hmm. played with this group. Now, right. maybe they know the people and they have some sense about what sort of game they would like to play in. Maybe they've talked about the game to this person and that's what brought them into the game. But I feel like assimilating into a game, you need to understand what the players want and expect, even independent of your the, the barrier of your prowess of understanding the mechanics and, and management of, of tasks, even if you were really good at that or you were endeavoring to challenge yourself in some way and felt that you could do it, that doesn't mean that you would establish the right kind of tone 
the right kind of world, the right kind of mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, managing a table of people is is difficult in its own right. Let alone if you're the new guy. The new guy is probably not likely, unless they have a lot of experience with games, is not likely to command the kind of authority to manage the game because they're new. So, and if these players are all like used to one another, you could very quickly find yourself frustrated and trying to A, give them what they want and B, craft the kind of story and manage the, the game in a way that is necessary. So that requires a certain temperament. In general, I think it just being a GM requires a certain temperament of person. Some people just are not cut out for it, period. They, they, they are, they're mm. not conscientious enough to manage lots of tax. They're not uh, um, patient enough to kind of learn the nuances of game mechanics. They don't have the kind of uh, presence at a game table that allows them to manage players. You know, we kind of talked about problem players like a, last week or a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have that those temperaments. And it's hard to have that as the new guy because you're coming into a position of authority to, to manage the game. And it's I think it's just really difficult to do unless these are people that, again, he or she has already known quite well. And they have a certain sort of dynamic. It might just slot in and they might just want someone to run the game. If they're not directly asking and they're asking what you prefer, then I would say just in the interests of getting to know the game a little bit better, getting to know the players a little bit better, that you probably should come in as a player initially, see how someone else that runs that game from that group runs it. And then you can kind of get an idea like, okay, this person is a part of the group already. And this is how they run the game. And maybe they've run games before and they run them differently and they can kind of understand that these are what the players expect. This is the sort of dynamic that they foster. Maybe it's a little less um, structured. You know, some groups are, are fine to have a lot of uh, just, you know, they're not on task. It's kind of shoot the breeze mm-hmm. and kind of like yeah they get to you know two thirds of the time is just spent socializing and stuff like that and if that's the kind of game that you're playing in you don't want to be the guy that comes in and be like okay like stop you two stop chattering right I'm talking to Matt over okay. here and I want to know what his character does and they're like whoa hey what the fuck is the new guy's problem right like we're all just you know chattering and like you know making jokes or whatever and it's like you, you don't want to be that guy and you don't know if you're that guy if you don't know the group. So that's my short mm. answer. You know, I was on a com- similar community question. The one that we had last week about the guy wanting to run two separate characters. And we basically were just like, yeah. fuck off. Don't do that. I thought yeah. about it more. And I think the only way that it actually works is if both characters are in the party all of the time. And one of them is an NPC. Mm. And then the PC just trades off which one of them he is operating because then there's no issue of leveling, right? Like if the party levels during milestones or XP, then the NPC would be getting the equal share and so that he would be leveling at certain different intervals. 
but they would have to relinquish control of that PC or that that in that case the character the NPC to the GM and just accept and trust that the GM would run them accordingly because you can't have a player at a table running two characters. Trust me, it's a fucking mess. I've tried it. And so uh, mechanically and just in role-playing wise, it's it's just not good. So you have to allow that NPC to kind of sit in the background and allow the, the GM to run him mechanically and maybe a little bit here and there and trust that if something goes awry, that maybe that character might die or something like that. Um, and then trade off which one that you're, I think that's the only way in which it could work. I know we were kind of hard on that questioner last week, but I think that can work. But to me, it just also opens the door to, well, if that, if that character can do that, then why can't other characters do that? And then suddenly you have the DM Mm -hmm. running several NPCs and the DM doesn't want to do that. So anyway, just, I I was thinking about that a little more. So yeah, no, that's really good point um i wanted to bring up a little situation if it happened say just out of the blue because we've been going cold on our curse of Strahd campaign all of a sudden for some reason who knows what it is diana says hey i've had a story in my head and what if i run it for you guys like you mike beto and matt what if i do this would you be willing to coach me through it and let me run this. Uh, well, for people that don't know, Diana is my girlfriend. So, uh, yeah. first of all, she would never do that. <laughs> That's why I said in this situation. Yeah, in this situation is not even in some fantasy world would she ever do that. But um, <laughs> it, because I mean, she's played a couple of times. She understands how the game works. But but mm-hmm. no, I I wouldn't. I remember you telling me that she's played a couple, but of I would, times. I wouldn't be having it. You know, even I think the lead time on a, I think the lead time from new to a role-playing game to running that game, even generously is or conservatively is at least a year. You need to be playing in a game at least once every couple of weeks for at least three to four hours for a year. And even then, if you have a, if you're the kind of person that delves into it, which means when you're not playing, you're reading the books and you're understanding and you, and you talk to the other players and the, and the, someone else who runs your game about how to run the game, then maybe you could do it. But I think it just takes a lot of moving parts that you're not likely familiar with because as a, player you just get used to managing one character and that one character's sensibilities and that can be enough Mm. and doing it for an entire you know world building rules and mechanics establishing you know trying to prod players into role playing having npcs that feel rich and alive uh, all of this mm-hmm. stuff like i've been doing this shit like more than 20 years and i still feel like there's some like a, every time i'm like man well, i really didn't kind of drop the ball on this element or i need to be better about mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. right and i know how to do these things it's not that i don't know how to do any one of them it's just doing them all at the same fucking time is difficult oh like all within God. one session there's so many times that i am just running a one shot for people and i feel like i'm dropping mm-hmm. the ball because, like you said, if there's some points where you're playing an NPC and you want them to feel rich and alive, 
but then all of a sudden you just drop something that's for some reason it just doesn't mm-hmm. work out and it sucks it fucking sucks no matter how long you've been doing this like i've been playing npcs for fucking ever but every now and then sure it just it fucking to sucks continue on my ongoing campaign of film analogies i imagine it's a lot like being a film director or a film editor like you can all these components of a film it's like what to include and when to include it in what proportion. You know, if you just have like, if you just have one element, okay, this session is going to be role-playing forward. So what I need to do is I need to try to bring the NPCs to life. Okay, if you're just focusing on that, you could probably do it. Or this is more exploration-based. And so... What I'm going to do is to try to uh, provide vivid descriptions of the environment and prod the characters into maybe moments of inter-party dialogue that reveal something about the characters. You could just do that. And maybe if it were a more action-oriented adventure, you're like, I'm going to push the pacing of the adventure to a good point. And... If that's all you were doing, you could do that. Maybe there's a big conflict battle where you want the the battle to seem vivid and cinematic. And if that's all you were doing, you could manage that. But trying to manage all of them, most sessions are a combination of seven or eight different skills. And these are just independent of like knowing the rules, right? You have to know that mm-hmm. and, and uh, try to provide different times for different players to shine this uh, managing all of this like sometimes you'll feel like you do certain things really well like i felt like i really gave matt's character an opportunity to shine and then you go like next session you go like yeah but what about like mike and chris like what they probably didn't mm-hmm. feel very like seen last session you're like, okay i gotta like, do that but if you very rarely do i come away with a session where i feel like i've done all of those things well and again i've been doing this basically since i was like 12 and so uh, it's doing each one of them individually is, is arduous enough and trying to put them all together is, is difficult enough when you know how to do them. If you don't know how to do them, it, it I, I would imagine it could just seem super overwhelming. I can't imagine getting the task of running a game at this juncture, like fresh and new. You know, you build up mm-hmm. these skills over time and, you know, I've grown with the players that I've played with. And so their expectation has risen over the years. I just got fresh players that had the expectation that you or anyone else has of me of as a DM and I've never DM before. I would feel like an abject failure on almost every front. <laughs> and. Dave might not know, but he's still the king of the fucking Segway. As we can get into our main topic on that, because balancing encounters, whenever people think of encounters, they usually think of just combat, right? No, there's so many more. And I know we talk about it a lot on this. There's just combat. There's just combat. That's all there is. No, 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 Dave. There's not. There's not just combat encounters. There's so much more. There's way more you can do. Uh, Let me. Okay. So we got. Social encounters, mm-hmm. right? We've got travel encounters, which is not just combat. It's not just random encounters. 
but the, during travel, there's a lot of other things mm-hmm. that can come up. Sure. There are random monsters. There are combat encounters. Okay, now I'm at a loss. What else have we got? I know that well, there's more. Depends on how you want to slice it. Um, I think of an encounter as anything of interest it, to the plot or to the characters. So, okay. That's good to know because a lot of people think that encounters is only when dice are being rolled. I wouldn't say so. So I, I, I'm, I agree I think with a, you. I wouldn't call something a, like a travel montage an encounter because it's not relevant to the plot and there's no stakes. There should be stakes and it should be relevant to the plot or the character's motivations in some way. So that could be role playing with NPCs. It could be role-playing among the party members. Some sort of external event stirs up some sort of party strife or party camaraderie. And in which case, you those are harder to navigate as a DM because you're not really in charge of them. But they're some of the most rewarding things in the game when the players kind of take the reins and you prod them a little bit. And they run with some concepts. Highly agree. Uh, could be combat. It could be a trap or an environmental hazard that the players need to circumvent. It could be something that is not necessarily role-playing related, but has some interaction with an NPC that is off the main quest to help them. To uh, It could be something that you would just call kind of like an interlude, something that sets mood and something that sets tone. Uh, so Okay. So now we've got a good idea of what encounters traps, are. Traps. Traps are encounters. when we go... Oh, traps are definitely uh, Skill challenges are encounters. Uh, but I, I, yeah. Skill challenges. And yeah, they all... Um, but now that we have a good sense of what the encounters are, when you talk about balancing, it's not always level that we're talking about when we're talking about balancing <laughs> encounters. Because I've had plenty of encounters that were lower level. They're higher level than what the characters actually are. Uh, when you when you talk about balancing encounters, what does Dave think when he's balancing? I hardly ever think of the challenge. The challenge is almost separate to that. How challenging is the encounter is not really what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about balance, I'm talking about uh, the different components that make an encounter interesting. And I think we've talked about this before about, um, for instance, within an encounter, there are things that make it appealing to the characters. One of them is the challenge. How challenging is it? Mm-hmm. But one of them is also how vivid your description of whatever it is that's happening is so if you're painting a vivid scene then that sets mood and it gives texture if you're allowing for a certain amount of dynamism in the encounter then that provides a certain degree of uh god what's the word i'm looking for here if it's if it's if it's dynamic then then it's cinematic And so the players are kind of interested in things that are inherently interesting because they're action-oriented. And that doesn't need to be in a battle, Mm -hmm. but it very well could be 
we talked about this with environments and stuff, encouraging players to move around the environment and interact with the environment. This is a component of balancing encounter. Like how much of that do I want? Uh, so you have the challenge, how hard the thing is. If it's, if it's a combat encounter or if it's a role-playing encounter, what is the central conflict? And what is the central mm-hmm. thrust of that conflict? So maybe the it's a role-playing encounter, but if the one component of that encounter would not just be your description of what is happening, so it's a role-playing encounter in a palace, that all should set the stage for presumably the main component, which is who, you know, we talked about quests last week. You're talking to a king. Now, that contributes to another component of balancing the encounter, which is what are the dramatic stakes? If, it, if, if the challenge and the stakes are aligned, then you need to add a few different layers. So if, a, if it's a new monster that the characters have never encountered before, it's a dragon, or it's negotiating with a king, those two things are inherently interesting because it's a king it's a dragon, the stakes are high, and it's something new. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've never encountered this king before. They've never had an audience with a king, just like they've never encountered a dragon before. So it's something new and it's fresh. So that's one component of balancing it. But if you just are are hinging it on that, you don't, it's not going to be as interesting as you might want it to be. So you need to try to Mm -hmm. add other components. And the more of them that you can add, as I discussed, there's some sort of dynamism in the encounter so that the encounter seems cinematic. Uh, Things happen within the encounter that are dramatic. And you describe them in a way that anchors in the player's mind some sort of texture about the world or mood or something to that effect. I would say another component is also what does it mean to the characters? Can you in some way during an encounter have a moment or moments that single out the character whose turn it is in some unique way, something that's important to their character, something that allows them to reveal their creativity, their personality, their class skills. Um, are there other components I'm missing? What's, what's another component of an encounter that makes it, makes it good? So in the the talk of balance is, like you were saying, with the king and the dragon, think of yourself as, yes, you are, you may be the heroes of the land here, but as soon as you go up against this other, we're we're just going to use the word threat at the time for dragon, king, whatever you want. As soon as you get in front of, I really like the king thing that you're bringing up. Because as soon as you get in front of that king, he doesn't give a fuck about you. Yeah, you helped somewhere in his lands, or maybe you helped in neighboring lands, and he just heard about your doings. But guess what? That dude could either love your guts, or he doesn't give a shit about you, and he just wanted to use you for something else. So when you're talking about balance, it's not always the challenge rating of the dragon. There's the challenge rating of this king where you have to get on his good side or you have to raise your 
social hierarchy to his level before you can start talking to him in mm -hmm. some way. That's one thing that I really like what you were bringing up, uh, especially when it comes to that is when is it a good time to bring them in to this? Cause like, like I was talking about last time with, uh, Rob, when his character became King and he was talking with the rest of the Kings of the world pretty much. And they treated him like a child because he didn't know how yeah. to be king. And when is it a good time to bring them in? Or is that a good thing as well to be able to shut them down? Uh, one thing I like to bring in, balance of encounters can also be that ceiling. The, the characters start to believe that they are at this peak. But guess what? There's a lot of world yeah. out there that they haven't adventured yet. There's a lot of things that they haven't encountered. And there could be a ruler and doesn't even have to be a king. It could be a duke. It could be a mayor of, a, a, you know, a hamlet that's just, a, I don't give a fuck who you are. You're in my town. These are my the rules. Framing of uh, dramatic and, stakes, like I said, you know, there that's yeah. an interesting, mm -hmm. because if it plays into the overarching plot, then maybe there's an opportunity to, in some way, tinker with the player's perception of the world. They think. Like, oh, this is a culmination of, you know, our prowess. And, and you make them realize, like, again, the threat is larger than you realized. And you're being suddenly contextualized into a larger schema. So an encounter that achieves that, that achieves some sort of dramatic stakes, whether it's through how it pushes the plot forward or simply by its raw challenge. Sometimes things are just difficult enough. Mm -hmm. that they are cathartic for the players to overcome. and But that's typically at the culmination of some sort of plot arc. But on a smaller level, I think you can do it with things that don't have as high of dramatic stakes for the overarching plot, but maybe are opportunities for the players in the party to reveal something about who they are, what they value, personal journeys. It, it, it could just be as simple as an, a random encounter from point A to point B that is a farmer whose cart has gone off the road, right? That would be an encounter. There's really no threat mm -hmm. there. Maybe there is, and you might play with the player's, again, sense of perception. If you wanted to add another component, you could add a sense of mystery and drama and threat that maybe maybe this isn't what it seems that would be another component to add and would consequently balance the encounter out a little more but it doesn't need to be maybe it's just straightforward it's pretty clear this guy needs their help but how do you layer that in a way that allows one or more of the characters to make a decision that in some way illuminates who they are and usually what that is, is we were talking about Vox Machina last week, oh, which which I finished and we didn't really talk about next week. Um, oh, yeah, right. But one of the things is that there's always competing goods. And if you make those some encounter pulls the characters in, in different ways to a competing good. One is likely the overarching plot and one is likely something that's fairly personal. This is a thing that I, you know, want to do that my character would do because he's a 
man of piety and, you know, sees a desire to help with the downtrodden. And something as simple as, as that tension can go, okay, one, um, there's the thing that we're doing for the main quest is time sensitive, and this is a distraction from it. Two, the other players, characters, are not probably as invested in this as you are, so that likely creates some sort of party tension. And anything that can do that, that might sow the seeds for future things that opens doors um, is good. And so if you can incorporate those components in, especially if you're doing more simplistic things like vivid descriptions, like if you set the scene, like let's just imagine that this is a random encounter. And it could just be a random mm -hmm. encounter off to the side of the road where some farmer's cart has gone off the road. Why is it important? Well, you could make it important by going, well, the party's on the way to do something that might be time sensitive. And this one character is, grew up a farmer. He grew up a poor farmer, so he's sympathetic to the plight of farmers in this region. And the rest of the PCs aren't necessarily, and they think that it's a higher priority to go do this thing that's for the overarching plot. And so it kind of a zero-sum game. You only have so much time. So then mm -hmm. maybe it affords an opportunity for the PC that wants to help to convince the other party members, in which case you have an inter-party dynamic. And then maybe you could layer another layer over it, another component of balancing the encounter, which is make it some way mysterious. Make there something kind of slightly amiss where the party might think that there's actually danger here. Not only is it, a, it are they distracting them from their main goal, but then there's a possibility that this person is, is, is tricking them. So now there's an element of danger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you set the scene in a vivid way. You use really good descriptions and and it sets the mood. Then when the PCs go up and they interact with this person, the farmer or whatever, you are thoughtful about making him a character that has a lot of texture. Maybe the other PCs didn't want to stop, but God damn it, if this guy isn't fucking likable and you really want to help him, yeah, really. you know, and then you go, okay, so there's another layer to that. Then let's say you layer in some uh, opportunity, not only for the characters to reveal what they value, which is already just inherent in the stopping, but you try to incorporate in some way um, some success or failure. Maybe they have to do a few skill checks to help out. And then the other PCs, this didn't happen in a vacuum. When you get to the main quest thing, maybe maybe this stopping actually did in some way they just missed the villain exiting town and he absconded with, with the thing that they were going to stop him. So now then you've sown the seeds for future strife in the party and future implications in the plot, all from stopping to help a farmer for a cart. And that's a really well-balanced encounter that could play very straightforward as just some sort of distraction. The PCs would just be like, why do I fucking care? Mike is this way, generally speaking, no matter how how hard I try. Yeah. He's like, we don't got time for this shit. Fuck this. I don't care. Why do I care? Fuck that yeah, guy. Mike and Patrick, no matter how yeah. interesting I try to make it yeah. NPCs, he's like, fuck this guy. I don't care. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. right. And so you kind of need some of that. But I think that that was an otherwise straightforward encounter that by adding a few different components to it helped balance it out into something that is 
got bigger implications. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other tactics that I use or any other components. No, you fucking nailed it because I wanted to go into it. Like you went right into it. Thank you. I like to go right into uh, it, you know, because I, I know you do. I expected a lot of people that heard us when I first said uh, balance of encounters. They just want to know the challenge hmm. of it all. But a lot of players these days and some GMs, and I've been on a lot of message boards and I've seen it. They don't realize if you do want to bring in that dramatic stakes that this little thing like a farmer on the side of the road can really be something mm -hmm. big that can completely like Dave just illustrated really well. It can completely derail uh, a part of their quest, um, no matter if you planned it or not. But even that you can plan it and. If they just keep on going, oh, well, then they're going to be there before the big bad is able to do whatever the fuck he wants. But I love that whenever they do, they stop or one person says that. And that's the balance of it all is really that one person in the party that is willing to stop and say, I want this. We want I want to do this. And I love that. I love that part of it. And I think whenever I think of balancing and I think of encounters, that's the first thing I think of is I really want just one person out of the party. It could be more. It could be all of them. It could just be one. I just want at least one to come in and say, I want to stop and do this because my character has this feeling that this needs to be done. And I want to be able to try to do it as quick as possible. And yet again, you can do a skill challenge. You can do a couple dice rolls to try to figure out how long mm -hmm. it takes. But either way, I just love that, that feeling that, yes, we need to do this now. Otherwise, I would hate myself earlier or later if I didn't. Certain elements of an encounter, if they're turned up high enough, they don't need other components. That was a, that, that example that I like tried to layer each different components is because stopping to help a farmer on the side of the road is not inherently um dramatic really mm -hmm. maybe if you have an encounter where it's like it's just super challenging it's an ancient red dragon or something so you have different components to the encounter which is the the reward and the glory are going to be great and the challenge is high those two things are so turned all the way up to 11 that maybe you don't need other components but if you do want them to be memorable then I think that you're missing an opportunity to kind of what does it mean to the characters? Um, I'm, I'm notoriously terrible for like making the villains that you're fighting. Um, dragons are smart and clever and they should, they should have texture and personality to them. So you remember killing them, not just because they were hard, but because mm -hmm. they were in some way um, a rich, alive NPC, you know, we talked about this on our episode about Nemesis and the whole like, how do you create a good Nemesis? And it's to make that character alive in some way that is like makes the the PCs really fucking hate that guy. And yeah, that's mm -hmm. fucking that, drought. That's that easier fucking for drought. me to do over a long arc, but in a short term, in one encounter, they're it can be a little more challenging, especially when you're fixated on the whole, like what's happening and okay, how do I make the, the encounter 
dynamic so that the party isn't just like surrounding the dragon and just like hacking it to death right you want it to feel mm -hmm. um you know uh pregnant with some sort of stakes and different components are appropriate for different situations having having rich alive npcs is not as valuable in a combat encounter now if it's a dragon or it's mm -hmm. drow or it's some demi-lich or something, then maybe that is an element that you want to incorporate. But think of a like a like a horde battle, right? Maybe there's some big mm -hmm. scale fight where the party is slaying dozens of enemies. They're all funneling through like a certain area and they have to, you know, it's like a battle of endurance or whatever. You don't need to make those those hordes have texture, but try to figure out, okay, that's not an element that I'm including when I'm balancing this encounter. Uh, maybe the challenge is moderate, but how do I give it some texture so it's memorable? Because I would venture to guess as a player that the most memorable encounters that you've had that stick out in your mind are not likely necessarily the hardest ones. And I've know I've been guilty of, oh, no. of making really hard end of the campaign, end of the adventure encounters kind of just be, well, they're challenging. And so I'll just let them play mm -hmm. out that way as opposed to having an opportunity for a little more story, character development, texture, whatever. You're always balancing description and texture with economy of action and trying to keep it mm -hmm. dynamic and fast paced. Um, One I will give you right now is I believe you set this up for us to succeed no matter what because we went through it no problem it was back in the AD&D mm -hmm. game when fuck what was his name the paladin um with the plant monster that killed our paladin uh, Mortigan. Mortigan, Mortigan. The paladin. when he yeah. died yeah <laughs> when he died you made it seem like it, it was Mortigan he was this big bad badass paladin with a fucking holy avenger went against this plant creature and he died he died outright you made it that it was in the plant creatures favor but my character i was just like fuck this shit yeah. i ran away but jace was just like fuck that shit i'm gonna run in and take yeah. over this shit and he just went in and attack cody went in right after him and like i joined him a little bit later but it was no yeah. problem we beat the thing no problem but the at the uh at the end of it it, it felt so yeah. good it felt really good to take this thing out because Mortigan yeah. was killed. That was retribution in some way. So you have mm -hmm. to think about any given encounter. You need to start with what's the purpose of the encounter. Does it serve a purpose in the plot? Does it serve a purpose for the characters? Does it serve a purpose for something? If you're just throwing encounters in for the sake of like putting challenges in front of your players, those might not be the best encounters unless you're trying to establish some sort of mood of a constant tide of of chaos coming at the players where it's just this onslaught where it's just constant and it's wearing on them if that's the mood and that's establishing the mood in the world that you want to build then then maybe you could just have like a a constant onslaught of of mm. uh, violence coming at your characters but if it's yeah. just for the sake of like, man, it seems kind of, I mean, we are all guilty of just being like, oh, let's just kind of shake things up and throw an encounter. And there's what random encounters are for. Yeah. But if you have a list of random encounters, you should build them out. 
build out like what's happening and why it's happening. Don't just have any random thing happen, right? If the players try to foreshadow certain things that might be in a random encounter, if the PCs are traveling from point A to point B and there is a random encounter that happens and you roll on your table that's a random encounter for a boule or a mana core that has nothing to do with the overarching plot of the story, but the players, if it's a mana core or it's a boule or it's, it's a tribe of, of, of hobgoblins, the players should have heard about them. They should have been the hobgoblins that like mm. burned down somebody's farm. It should have been the boule that like ruined someone's crop that they heard about in town. It should be the mana core that like the locals have been terrified of for the last decade or whatever. And in some way it adds a different layer to it. And so that's gives it some sort of meaning, even if you don't include, you know, a vivid description of how horrific the mana core looks or, or in some way make it a vivid NPC. But the more of that stuff that you can stack on top of it um, by just a little bit of thought and preparation into where any encounter fits into your, not just the plot for the, the adventure or the plot for the characters, but failing that the, the, the world in which it inhabits in what way is it important to the world and is just kind of overlapping the players uh, coincidentally here. And in which case, if you do that and you just think about the different components, description, dynamic environments, something uh, giving the characters and the uh, opportunities to use maybe unique skills or, or things or even circumvent something that might otherwise be a threat, you know, all these components are put together, you don't need to use all of them every time. But if you use enough of them, then otherwise mundane encounters could seem... Uh, much more memorable. I try to do this with uh, just descriptors, right? Instead of being like, it's Goblin 1, it's Goblin 2, it's Goblin 3. It's like, okay, well, this is the Goblin that has like an eye patch. Uh, this is the Goblin mm -hmm. that, that uh, you know, smells like horse shit. And, uh, you know, this is the Goblin that has like a busted tooth. They just automatically have texture just by describing them that yeah. way. And, and I, you know, sometimes it's fun to do with little, uh, like treasure, right? We get really fixated on having, he has X amount of gold and a weapon. Well, give him some weird shit. Give him like a string of like fish heads or something. That's just like really weird and like, mm -hmm. you know, memorable. Like that's just a different, and that's not even in the encounter after the encounter. You know, you could give them some sort of unique marker or unique thing. Um, and if you just do enough of that, then. Uh, the encounter will have texture. It doesn't necessarily have to have a lot of meaning in order to be fun. Yeah, I want to bring up the the beauty of back in the day we had morale mm -hmm. checks, um, but now you don't even need that because I want to bring up two um, identical situations that came up. Both Dave and I have both run um, Lost Miner of Fandelver, and uh, it's the Venom Fang fight. When you come up against oh, the green, the green dragon, dragon um, I remember in my game, the characters didn't do mm -hmm. so well. They got beat down really bad, and I had to come up with a way to have Venom Fang just kind of mm -hmm. fuck off. Uh, 
which I came up with at some point was like everybody was down to whatever and Venom Fang just looked down at them saying, I know you're weak and pitiful and I'm going to give you this one last chance to bring me a, a tepid, you know, a, bring me something, bring me some treasure and I'll let you live. Uh, but I remember when I played in yours, we beat the fuck out of that mm-hmm. dickhead and they should have been dead, but you wanted Venom Fang for a later to be fair, Scenario, Patrick beat much. the shit out of the dragon. Yes, Patrick really beat the shit Because they were smart. Like, this was some but, thoughtfulness on the part. One, I thought I did a pretty good job of, of making that dragon in particular have a, a kind of distinct personality. It started off as a mm-hmm. negotiation with the dragon. Um, but then things got heated and the, the area was kind of cramped. Two of the PCs went down, but then Patrick just did some really good roles and the in the thing of the adventure, the dragon's not going to fight to the death. It's like once it's down to half its hit points, it mm. fucks off and leaves, which is exactly what happened. And so he just fucked off and left. Uh, I thought that was a pretty memorable encounter. Right. Uh, all I know is that you told me later, you was just like, wow, you know, he was really down there. If he hadn't have fucked off right then, Venom Fang would have yeah. just been dead. So you decided to fuck, you know, have them fuck off because I you actually thought about having Venom Fang come yeah. back. And that's another part of balancing it out. If you find that a somebody, you know, it doesn't have to be the big bad evil guy, just somebody that has been in the way, uh, much like in our old school with the drow was our big bad evil guy. But, uh, oh shit, what was it? Red Hawk mm-hmm. or whatever the fuck doesn't matter. Uh, was one that we kept going that's after a wild card because they were right. It was interesting. Yeah. And no matter what, you would do whatever you could to keep them back the entire time. And that's awesome. I love that. You're chasing the carrot. You got to keep dangling that carrot because no matter what, your players are always going to be chasing that. And no matter how much it pisses them off at the time, trust me, at the they're going to continue to enjoy that as, th- as soon as they find out what the end of that is and as soon as they get that carrot, oh, it's so worth it. Those things are, yeah, different, a good example of kind of how to balance an encounter. I mean, one element of it could just be frustration, which kind of falls under the gen. Yeah. It's also kind of going from our last, uh, last week when we were talking about mm-hmm. fudging roles, I guess I'm going with that as well. well. It falls under the umbrella of probably the challenge of the encounter, but there's something inherently, um, extra frustrating to a character when you craft an encounter in a way that the players, if they could meet it head on, feel like they would be successful. But for whatever reason, you make sure that they cannot meet it head on. That's what I would call another element of of balancing an encounter, something that's a simple Mm -hmm. uh, kobolds are great for this at low levels because kobolds use traps and, and, and hit and run tactics. It's like kobolds are easy to fucking kill, but make them evasive make them set traps that fuck the pcs mm-hmm. up and weaken them before they get there oh, constantly yeah. like moving away it's like that's irritating but there's also the flip-flop that you have to do because you can't just dangle that carrot and yank it away every single time like with the venom mm-hmm. fang thing going back to venom fang as soon as venom fang fucked off we had the horde venom fang had a horde there mm-hmm. we had treasure to get so there's always got to be that other side though that's one of the big things. You always have to have that other side. It can't just be no matter what. 
yanking that car- carrot. That's what you call time. a consolation prize, something. right? You couldn't kill the dragon, which is what right. you really wanted, but you get his horde. Uh, I'll give you another example of something I did. I played the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak with my players, Mike and Chris and uh, somebody else. Was it? Might have been Beto at the time. Anyway, they got killed by the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, uh, Cryofang. And so, a uh, Cryovane, excuse me. So, Cryovane kills the party, TPK, campaign over. So then our next campaign was uh, the Sunless Citadel. New characters. There's this enclave of kobolds. This is set like, uh, I don't know, 75 years prior to the events of the Dragon of Icefire Peak, but takes place in the same region. There's this enclave of, of kobolds and they're sharing a cave with these goblins, and there's strife between them. And so the players are tasked with, you know, kind of settling that quandary, which they didn't end up doing. But the kobolds, in their care, have a dragon wormling. And so what I did was just made that dragon wormling the worm the cryovane wormling so the players oh, when nice. they they were like these characters had nothing to do with the cryovane that was like the young dragon version that killed them they had nothing to do with it but the players knew this is this is this is the fucking young version of the, the wormling version of the young dragon that killed our previous characters so when they fucking killed this wormling it was a lower level and they were mm-hmm. lower level but when they killed it it was much more meaningful to them because it just tied into a campaign yeah. and it really had nothing to do but it just that made that encounter a little more lively than it otherwise would have been oh that's so good and see that's what just a little bit of taking your encounters no matter what they are be it combat social whatever the fuck just evening, evening them out and bringing it in so that the story has a little bit of something to bring in for everybody. But I think that is going to bring us to the end of this podcast. Uh, if you want to bring up any topics, send it to inside the GM studio at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Are we talking too much? You know, a little bullshit. Let us know what you want. That's all it is. I know we ramble on, but for this episode of Inside the GM Studio, I've been Matt. A good night. I need.